Welcome to Asia Abridged, where we highlight the best moments from Asia Society events. I'm Eric Fish. This past May, Iran's moderate president, Hassan Rouhani, was re-elected to a second term. This suggested the continuance of a stable, if often contentious, U.S.-Iran relationship, at least from the Iran side. But on the American side, President Donald Trump has taken a harder line than his predecessor, and as a presidential candidate, vowed to rip up the Iran nuclear deal negotiated under Obama, a promise he hasn't yet acted on. In these clips from an event at Asia Society in New York, analysts look at the state of the Iran nuclear deal two years after its implementation, its context in domestic Iranian politics, and the broader U.S.-Iran relationship. We start with Gary Samore, former White House coordinator for arms control and weapons of mass destruction under President Obama. So the nuclear deal um, imposes physical constraints uh, on Iran's nuclear program in terms of the number of centrifuges and the amount of low-enriched uranium and heavy water and so forth that it can possess. And it also imposes uh, much more intrusive inspection methods in order to ensure that Iran is complying with the agreement. Uh, in exchange, Iran gets sanctions relief, especially sanctions relief on its access to the international financial market and on its ability to sell oil. So far, the Iranians have complied with the agreement, as verified by the International Atomic Energy Agency. In fact, since President Trump has taken office, the Iranians have been scrupulous about complying with the agreement because they fear that President Trump might take advantage of any question about compliance or any ambiguity by leaving the agreement. When President Obama was in office, the Iranians were playing games, testing limits. They would go over the amount of allowed low-enriched uranium or heavy water in order to see how the administration would react. Since Trump has taken office, the Iranians have not gone over the limits by an ounce or an inch. And I think it reflects the fact that they, especially President Rouhani, is benefiting from the agreement, even though the Iranians complain they're not getting all the sanctions relief they wanted. Nonetheless, they recognize that if the deal collapsed, it would have a very significant impact on the Iranian economy, on plans that Rouhani has. And so far, the deal has held. The Iranians have complied. And even though Trump, <clears throat> of course, criticized the deal during the campaign, the U.S. really doesn't have a practical option to leave the agreement as long as Iran is in compliance because there are other countries that are party to the agreement, uh, Russia, China, the British, French, and Germans, they support the agreement. They see it working well, and if the U.S. were to leave without cause, we would be blamed and it would be very difficult for us to reconstruct the coalition that made the sanctions pressure possible in the first place. So I think the deal in and of itself continues to be stable. The big question is the extent to which the U.S. and Iran competing on other important areas in the Middle East, in Yemen and Syria and Iraq, how much of that can bleed over and jeopardize the survival of the agreement? The nuclear deal has lifted many international sanctions on Iran, bringing it more economic opportunity and integration into the international system. Karim Sajapur, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and an Asia Society Asia 21 young leader, described how this is playing into domestic Iranian politics. He noted that while moderate forces like President Rouhani and Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif have driven these changes, there are more powerful people in Iran with harder-line views, most notably Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei. Well, I think after the nuclear deal was signed, the 
hardliners who are not certainly a, a minority throughout Iran, but perhaps a majority when it comes to the levers of power in, in, in Iran, you know, I, I think that they probably felt threatened. They feel threatened by uh, Iran's political integration and economic integration, and so they, they want to thwart that prospect. That's why I've always thought a challenge for U.S. policy toward Iran is that when we um, sanction Iran, when we isolate them politically and economically, in some ways, that's more of a carrot to Iran's hardliners than a stick. Just like you know, Kim Jong-un in North Korea or Fidel Castro in Cuba, I think they appreciate the fact that they can preserve their power much easier in a closed environment rather than an open environment. I think one of the dangers right now in just kind of global geopolitics is that uh, five, six years ago, you had Barack Obama in Washington, and you had Mahmoud Ahmadinejad in Tehran, and the Middle East before the Arab Spring appeared relatively stable. And so I think that Obama's efforts, and here this is when Gary was at the White House, Obama made these unprecedented but unreciprocated overtures to Iran, which really helped uh, Gary and his colleagues rally this you know, robust international coalition against Iran. I think now the problem is that Hassan Rouhani and Javad Zarif are in the eyes of much of the world, including the Chinese, the Russians, and many of our European partners, they appear to be reasonable actors. In their eyes, Iran is actually a stable country in the Middle East. The last thing they want to do is destabilize yet another country in the Middle East. And it appears to much of the world that it's the United States which is being provocative, not uh, Iran and Ahmadinejad. So the reason why I say this is that if the nuclear deal starts to unravel, whatever provokes it, Iran's missile tests or regional conflagrations, and we sanction Iran, Iran resumes its nuclear activities, we're not going to have the same global coalition that we had five, six years ago. And if it's only U.S. pressure and U.S. sanctions, well, about 100% of Iranian trade is with countries other than the United States. So that's not going to, to compel Iran to put on the brakes. And so that's why I do think it's, there's so many crises happening in today's world, you oftentimes think, you know, we couldn't, couldn't possibly add another one. But, but I do think that there is a real risk of, of some type of a conflict between the United States and Iran over the next 12 to 24 months. Ambassador John Limbert, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Iran, agreed that the risks have increased under Trump. Now, it's more dangerous now than it was six months ago, because six months ago, our Secretary of State could pick up the telephone yes. and speak to his good friend Javad Zarif. And these problems, which, could, which had the potent, would have the potential to create a, uh, if not an armed conflict, at least a major political crisis, could be resolved. As far as I know, that's not going, that doesn't happen today. I don't see our Secretary of State with that kind of relationship with his Iranian counterpart. I certainly don't see this very, anything like the very productive relationship that Secretary of Energy Muniz had with Dr. Salahi, his counterpart. It's a little bit hard to see Secretary Perry having such a relationship. So, so the, the dangers come on any kind, you know, the small, miscal, small miscalculation, a ship goes too far, a, a boat goes too far, uh, could lead to something very serious. And I don't see it right now. The mechanisms exist uh, for us to 
stop such a crisis. Sajapur said, though, that some degree of hostility between the U.S. and Iran is practically a given, regardless of what Trump does. You would like to be able to sit here and say, you know, if you just follow these three bullets, then you're going to be able to resolve the Iran question. And the reality is that you can't make amends, you can't make a deal with the regime which needs you as an adversary for their own internal legitimacy. And as long as the supreme leader is around, I think that's going to be the case. So I think basically Iran, U.S. policy toward Iran is, is a combination of three C's. It's cooperate when you can, when you can't cooperate, you contain, and when you can't contain, there are times, I think, when you have to confront, particularly as Iran has been complicit in really the greatest humanitarian catastrophe since the Second World War in Syria. There's not a silver bullet there. Obama wrote about half a dozen letters, I think, to the Supreme Leader, making it clear the United States is no longer in the business of where we don't want to do regime change, we want to cooperate with you. John Kerry spoke probably hundreds of times with Javad Zarif. If the Iranians ever wanted a deal with the United States, there was no better time with President Obama, Secretary Kerry uh, at the State Department. And, and again, if I were the advisor to the Supreme Leader, if I were his son, and my goal is to keep him in power, I wouldn't advise him to normalize relations with the United States because he's risen to the top and preserved his power in this closed environment. I think if he opens Iran up to the world, he normalizes relations with the United States. That's far more of an existential threat to him than continued contained hostility. So it's a frustrating answer, but I think it's some version of what U.S. policy towards the Soviet Union was. You, you contain, you do arms deals when necessary. I think you try to intelligently support Iran's progress and transformation to a more tolerant society. I don't think that the Trump administration has done any of these things well. Um, but there's no silver bullets, unfortunately. Limbert noted that the political situation is changing in Iran from below, albeit very gradually. After 37 years, 38 years, I think you are seeing change. I'm not quite so pessimistic. Things are changing. And one of the reasons things are changing is that the, the population, the message from the population was very clear. We reject this group of 20 to 25 senior clerics who have been in power and occupied all of the key positions since 1979. But the important thing is this group is passing from the scene. And here's where I'll quote Karim. Karim talks about this group and he says the average age of this group is deceased. <laughs> and I have stolen that from him many times. Uh, uh, many times. And the, mess and, and the population has changed. The population, as I, the, the, the Iran that I re remember from 37, 38 years ago, it's very different. It is aware, it is sophisticated, people are savvy. The literacy rate is well over 90 percent. Uh, there are universities now in many of the small uh, in many of the small towns. It's a, and if you look at the the creativity, particularly among women in uh, in Iran, it's uh, um, it's amazing. And the message is very clear: we're not going to put up with the way things were. We know. The establishment, the people in power, they don't ask us for our opinion very often. 
But when they do, on that rare occasion every four years, we are going to make our opinion very clear. And, I, and the message, I think, in this case was a, was a very clear one. I, I just kind of have started to temper my expectations about Iran because when I first started covering it, I just thought change was imminent. And then every four years, it was like Charlie Brown's football being pulled away. And, and I have seemingly now kind of come to the same conclusion. Ibn Khaldun once said this about empires that they are built and destroyed over three generations. In the first generation, they're really hard-nosed, they're, they're vigilant, they build it. The second generation had observed what the first generation built and they preserve it. And by the third generation, there's just kind of these palace-reared uh, princelings who end up losing it. Now, the Pahlavi government didn't even get to the third generation, they got to the second generation. The Islamic Republic is just now entering the second generation of leadership. Ayatollah Khamenei comes from still the first generation. When you talk to the grandchildren of these folks, they have a very different outlook. They're not hardline revolutionaries. But I guess the final thing I'd say is that when the uprisings were happening in Iran in 2009, and some of you may remember, you know, millions of people took to the street. I remember asking a son of a very prominent cleric, I asked him, how many supporters does Khamenei and Ahmadinejad really have? Because they seem to be significantly outnumbered by you know, these young people in the streets whom we, whom we all want to succeed. And he said, you know, what matters most in authoritarian regimes like Iran is not the breadth of your support, but it's the depth of your support. Meaning, if you have a couple hundred thousand people who are willing to go out there and kill for you and to die for you, that's more potent than five million people who will say nice things about you on Facebook. And the reality is the Islamic Republic of Iran does have a monopoly over coercion. They have the Revolutionary Guards and they have the Basij militia. And I say this about the Iranian population. In 1979, they experienced a revolution without democracy. Today, they want democracy without a revolution. And I think for that reason, the pace of change is going to be pretty slow. Uh, the elections look like a step forward. I think we will see some signs in the, in the coming months and years. Maybe we take a step backward. I think the general prognosis is, is positive. It's heading in a positive direction. But, but I think there's going to be a lots, of, uh, lots of back and forth. Thanks for listening to Asia Abridged. If you want to hear more, you can visit our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.